Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dell, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi, I'm Gemma Dale, NavTrade's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. We ask at the end of every podcast about those topics you'd like to hear more about. And one that's resulted in a series of requests, actually, is one of the unfortunate facts of life. You can't avoid death and taxes, although many people would really like to do their best to avoid the second one. Hence all the questions. Investing is exciting, but the tax treatment of your investments is not really... It's definitely not simple. So how do you best plan to maximise what you keep? Today I'm joined by NAB's Chief Tax Officer, Steve Southern. Steve has to deal with the complexities of tax for a business that spends what has tens of thousands of employees. It does business in multiple jurisdictions. It has an infinite variety of complex and simple products and it's stable. But he knows an awful lot about tax for the individual as well. So thank you so much for joining us. We're, uh, we're very fortunate to have you explained all. Thank you for the invitation. <laughs> so it's, um, it's a tricky job, tax, but um, we'll start with the basics. What are the key taxes that apply when you buy an Australian share? So most of what our investors are buying is shares, but we're going to talk about ETFs and lots of other fun stuff as well. What are the key things you need to keep in mind about buying an Australian share for tax purposes? Well, there's probably two main things. Um, firstly, dividends mm-hmm. and the receipt of dividend income and capital gains tax. Mm-hmm. And with dividends, probably there's two things. There's the, uh, the record keeping around mm-hmm. dividends and the tax office makes that a lot easier because they pre-fill a lot of information these days. Um, and the second thing with dividends would be imputation credits. So we'll, we'll talk about those later, but um, they're vitally important around working out your tax and the after-tax return. And capital gains tax, um, again, vitally important for um, the disposal and how much tax you ultimately pay. Things that are important there is around record keeping is critical, working out cost bases and dates of acquisition, etc. And on dates of acquisition, um, that's, again, um, very important because if you hold the asset for longer than 12 months, there's a, a tax concession, 50% of the capital gain if you're an indiv- individual and one-third if you're a super fund. And also, um, you know, working out sort of uh, net capital gains and losses, etc. cetera. Um, again, very critical to retain information about sales and, and purchase um, data. It's... Um it's a lot easier now than it used to be. It, uh, we're all pretty lucky now with technology sort of retaining a lot of that data. But I remember paper-based things, it was just your paper. Your filing cabinet used to get a little bit full, right, if you had any meaningful size of your portfolio. So a person who's on a high marginal tax rate is going to be much more sensitive to issues related to tax, right? Whereas someone who is going to be paying no taxes on a low rate, do they have to be as concerned about holding assets for more than 12 months, for example? Do you, do you make different decisions depending on your tax rate? Uh, definitely, because, um, you know, I guess tax, it's obvious that it impacts your after-tax return. So those that are on higher rates will be more sensitive or, or more um, interested, so to say, in things like franking credits or imputation credits where you get a a tax credit for tax paid by the corporate. And they'll also be very, um, you know, interested and sensitive to the holding period to access those concessions, the 50% that I referred to before and the the one third for super funds. So those that are on higher tax rates, yes, will be, will be, they'll they'll be generally very aware of those two major uh, factors. But those on lower rates, 
um, they are less so because they're not paying as much tax and they benefit from those lower tax um, tax rates. But saying that, given that imputation credits are refundable for, for, for generally for lower rate taxpayers, they're also very concerned or very aware that they get that refund and um, very keen to get it each year. I think we all learned that prior to the last election. Um, so well, one of the biggest issues there was this issue around franking credits. And one of the things that I think became apparent to so many people was that there was a lot of misinformation. People didn't have a particularly strong understanding of what they were, how they worked, the history of them, the intent, all that kind of stuff. There was a lot of a lot of press, particularly in the financial press, about franking credits and how they operate. And, uh, and people have very strong views about them. My personal view is I think the reason people reacted so strongly to the possibility that they would be taken away rather than many, many other changes in the legislation that affect them probably just as much. So changes in the age pension, for example, or changes in the super legislation that would affect just as many people and have equally meaningful impacts in terms of people's after tax or net return or net income was that this one you see it go in your bank account right? So you actually see the money come back in. You can quantify it very easily. It's much harder to quantify a deduction or quantify all these other things that sort of get worked out at the end of the year and you're never quite sure what they are in advance. Whereas people know exactly what that refund is and they feel quite strongly about hanging on to it. Can you talk us through what they are in simple terms and how they work? Well, franking... um as you say, there was a lot of press and, and there were some complex arguments put uh, to, for and against um, the, the particular proposals, but franking is quite a simple concept. What, what it is is that, and they call it imputation, mm. and, and, and by that very term, what it means is that the tax that's paid at the company level mm. by the corporate is then imputed down to the shareholder so that you don't get double taxation. Mm. Um, in the bad old days prior to 87, um, or 1987 I should say, there was double taxation of dividends, so it, tax would be paid up at the corporate and then by the shareholders, so the effective tax rate was quite high mm-hmm. on dividends. But to, you know, a, a simple example is $100, so mm-hmm. let's say a corporate earns $100 in profits, they'll pay $30 in tax and they'll have $70 to pay out as a dividend then how imputation works is the $70 is paid out as a dividend. The shareholder includes the $70 in their return, so the cash component. They also include the $30. So what happens is effectively it's shown at a pre-tax level at the, in, in the shareholder's hands, mm-hmm. but then they get a, a credit for that $30 in my example. That's already been paid. Yeah, yeah, so if your tax rate is $30, is 30%, then there's no further tax to pay. Now, in the, you know, in the controversy leading up to the election, it, it was all around refundability of credit. So if you had a tax rate less than you know, 30%, in, in my example, you get a refund. Mm-hmm. And they were looking for, for most taxpayers to, to eliminate um, that refundability. So it essentially meant that the, the headline tax rate on, on dividends was 30%, which for lower tax rate... Um, um, taxpayers can be seen to be unfair. So that's that's where that's a bit of background about imputation or, or franking. I use those interchangeably. Mm, but all, well, everyone else uses them interchangeably yeah, as well. So it's that, actually quite useful to say they're basically the same. Yeah, mm. yeah. But also a little bit of background about why there was so much heat in that debate. So 
let's talk about the really simple things, the tax rates that people uh, are subject to, right? So what are the different tax rates that people currently are going to, the bands that they sit within? Oh, you've, you've asked me a politician's question. <laughs> about, oh, I was just going, we'll just pull them off the tax office it, website. You pay 19 cents it, a dollar and so it, You know, that's that's one of those ones that, you know, new, uh, new assistant treasurer has been asked. But, but <laughs> and I, then they get stuck. I'm uh, I'm not aware exactly what the bans are. Mm. Uh, it's not something I look up every day. But, but you know, it, they, they, are, they are sort of um, um, graded. Um, you know, you've got, you know, there's, there's quite a large sort of lower income tax threshold these days and then you know um a quite a quite a high uh what i should say not high but there's quite an expansive middle middle rate of tax and mm-hmm. and then the the um the top rate of tax kicks in i think and you know this will be uh is around one hundred and eighty thousand dollars. but mm-hmm. but again don't don't quote me it's been a long time <laughs> since uh, what, what we'll do we'll publish them in the blurb so then you yeah, can look them up yeah. if you're interested so yeah so the top marginal rate is 47 cents a yeah. dollar plus medicare levy and it kicks in at 180 grand and that did i get that right you did yeah, oh. thank you <laughs> given, the, yeah, <laughs> given that you make all these complex decisions yeah. on our behalf um you know so they're the group who are most sensitive and it is really interesting watching people who whose tax rate is nowhere near 47 cents in the dollar plus Medicare levy, being very sensitive to the impact of tax. And I do understand it because, you know, the less money you have, every dollar counts and you want to insure it. But let's talk about deductions because I think this is quite interesting. Um, any thoughts on the kinds of deductions that are available to people in general? Is one of the points I always like to make to people when they say, how do I reduce my tax? And I used to find people who were like, there's a miracle secret source out there for reducing your tax and I just need to do this special thing and then I don't pay any tax. It was like, yeah, you can cheat. That's one option. But other than that, you know, the, the options available to you for reducing your tax usually involve spending money. You get a deduction for money you've spent on something and if your marginal tax rate is quite low, so if your marginal tax rate is 19 cents in the dollar, you've spent 81 cents to save 19. And that's quite shocking to a lot of people I think sometimes do you talk us through deductions and how they work yeah well I think you hit the nail on the head before where um, implicitly you, you said well you know you spend spend a dollar and if you if you've got a 19 percent tax rate you're going to get a, a, essentially a, a tax refund of 19 cents so mm-hmm. deduction works essentially um, you pay out sort of a, a gross amount and, mm-hmm. the, and the value of the deduction is the deduction times the tax rate and so that that's a very important thing where when I first started in my career you'd have people on the 30th of June spend out a lot of money mm. and they reduced tax but they actually you know were, were not getting a lot of a lot of them were on sort of the lower tax rates and so the, the actual value of the deduction wasn't that high but but in in the investment sort of space what I see is like there's there's a couple of key deductions like interest is is a key one because a lot of people borrow to um, to invest in sort of um, shares and other sort of managed trusts, etc. So, so interest with that with interest, you've got to be um, careful on your record record keeping because mm. uh, you know money is fungible. So what happens um, is that um, you know invariably people start out with a dedicated um, borrowing for, for shares, etc. They may restructure their personal affairs and may consolidate borrowings, etc. And you've got to be very careful that the interest that you're claiming can be um, related or or, um, or traced to the particular investment. 
So that that would be something. I guess record keeping would be would be something that I that I would stress uh, with interest because of that that type of um, um, thing that happens over time, where you know uh, borrowings are consolidated and split, and you know and 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 so forth. The other um, the other key thing is tax agent fees and advisor fees, where um, the even though there's been efforts over the years to make the tax act more simpler, um, you know, <laughs> it keeps us all in a job. It, well, it, it just gets bigger. Like yep. uh, you know, when I first started, I, I think it was two or three books, and now you almost need like a wheelbarrow to. Yep. Uh, <laughs> And the guide. The guides are enormous. The guides to the enormous guide. That's exactly right. So, uh, you know, tax agent fees is another one um, that you commonly see in the investment space. The the point I would make there is that um, it has to be to a record, not what they call a recognised tax advisor, so a tax agent typically or a solicitor um, to get the deduction. Um, So just be careful that you're paying... The, the fee to, a, to an actual accredited tax To a person that you can claim a deduction for right. it, if that's yeah. your purpose. I think I've actually got a really good example of um, how I learned what a deduction was. So I was quite young and I think I had my first professional job working for a large institution and they had uniforms available. You didn't have to wear one, but they had them. And they... Um, said with well, the uniform because it was branded in the and the or the logo of the institution that you could claim a deduction for it now i didn't at this point in time and i should have this is very embarrassing did not know the difference between a rebate and a deduction so i assumed that when i spent five hundred dollars on this uniform which was not attractive and i didn't particularly well, want but Giorgio Armani or something. Yeah. <laughs> no i mean this was for like a week's worth of clothing or whatever yeah. it was um that it would be uh, that I would get all of that $500 back, right? And I was like, okay, well, I will spend that $500, get the money back, and then that's my clothing taken care of for the week. Good. Uh, and then someone explained to me, no, a deduction is different to that. You can take that $500 away from your assessable income. So if you earn $50,000, you can declare that you earned $49,500 um, rather than the 50. That deduction is taken away and then you pay tax on the rest of it. And I was completely beside myself because I worked out that I was only going to get $150 back or whatever it was on this 500. And I was like, I want to spend $350 on this horrendous uniform I don't want to wear. So I sent it all back. But that was how I learned the difference between a deduction and a rebate. It's uh, embarrassing for someone who works in our field, to be honest with you. But um, any examples of rebates other than franking credits that are relevant for investors? Uh, In the rebate space, probably only, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but probably only foreign income tax credits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, The other rebates these days, the comment would be that the government has, um, over the years, eliminated a lot of the the rebates and so probably not in the investment space you commonly see them so i yeah i think it's sometimes really important to point that out to investors that the the suite and range of deductions and rebates available is dramatically different in my career and for anyone who's been around a lot longer than i have you would know things have changed a lot you know it used to be i remember the guys when I first started working, would love telling me about how they would go out all weekend partying and then come in on Monday morning and just dump their receipts ready to claim them all as a tax deduction from, you know, nights out and all this kind of stuff, which is, you know, clearly not the sort of thing that is uh, available as a deduction to the average person anymore. Well, that's right. And the the other point I would make is that um, 
over time with the with data analytics and data matching, the sophisticated sophistication and technology of the ATO um, with pre-filling and real-time data checking is, um, you know, I would, knowing what I know, and my advice to people is be very careful with what you put in the return mm. um, because they, they probably know, um, you know, what should be in there before you put it in there. Mm. Yeah, they're just getting so good now. It is yeah. amazing. And I had this experience a couple of years ago. We're completely, completely forgotten about one little cash account. It wasn't large. It just had a little bit of money in it. I can't even remember why I had it. And my tax agent was like, oh, but you had you know $120 worth of interest from this account. And I was like, oh, I didn't even remember that one. He was like, you need to start remembering. But don't worry, they've got it in there for you anyway. Yeah. You know, it's all there. So... The point you made earlier, and we're sort of skipping around a little bit, that's okay, hopefully people can follow, um, is that tax, so franking credits make Australian shares quite attractive and the ability to, and not all shares uh, provide franked income, uh, so many investors would be aware of this, that they'll usually give you an idea of what the franking level is on a dividend and you can kind of look back through the history and see what it's likely to be. Um, but if a company earns most of its income offshore, then you, they will have relatively low franking levels. You can also get the capital gains tax discounts if you hold the investment more than 12 months. If you look at other types of asset classes, shares are fairly attractive relative to term deposits, for example, aside from the fact that term deposits are not paying the greatest income in the world anymore anyway. Uh, that, that's right. So on an after-tax basis, the... Um, you know, the, the ability to, to, to obtain the credit for the tax that the corporate's paid is very attractive. Mm. Now, if you compare that against, like, let's say we were not in the interest rate environment that we're in at the moment, um, then if you're, getting, if, you're, if, if you're getting the equivalent yield in bank interest, then that comes to you without, um, without a tax credit. Mm. And so, like, obviously the risk profiles are, are different, but... Uh, the tax profiles are such that your your interest income is just fully taxable, whereas your your frank dividend income would come with the credit. The other the other I, I guess point to make is around you know offshore investments, and we'll, we'll delve into this um, a bit more deeper in a, in a second. But they don't come with franking. Right. Yeah, yeah. that's true. So it's only it's only Australian companies that pay Australian tax. That can give out franking credits, and so um, you need to you need to compare the after-tax yield with, of the foreign income or foreign mm-hmm. dividend with the Australian dividend, um, because you won't have that franking sort of kicker. Yeah, it's completely true, and most investors sort of seem pretty switched on about that. They yeah. work it out very quickly because there's a real incentive to work it out very quickly. Um, a couple of other things to think about, just while we're talking about deductions that are available, brokerage. Uh, fees and so on that you pay on investment accounts where do those sit well they don't sit in your deductible uh right. column right. um generally uh some so for most investors that are that are sort of doing things on what they call capital account which is just um when you're not in a business or you know of share trading uh which is probably most most investors mm-hmm. um then brokerage and fees they they they're added to the cost base of your investment for, for capital gains tax. And then uh, you get that as a sort of a, not as a deduction, but you get it as, as part of your initial investment. So it reduces the amount of any capital gain uh, that you make 
uh, on disposal. Yeah, so if you had a share, you bought $1,000 worth of shares, you paid $15 in brokerage, you later sold them for $2,000 because you had a great time, um, did very well out of those, uh, and that cost $15, you would be able to subtract those two yeah. $15 amounts from your total gain effectively. That, that's right. Cool. Okay, so once we've we've gone through the basics of those, moving into managed investments. So if I look at the suite of investments that now trade investors hold, uh the cash count, so the high interest account and Australian equities are obviously the vast majority of the assets that our investors hold. But they're also increasingly holding uh, managed funds via M funds and also listed uh, ETFs generally. So I'm going to say ETFs and ETMFs so they're in a fund structure rather than LICs that are treated like a company so they can pay out frank dividends and those sorts of things. If we look at listed uh, entities like an ETF or unlisted entities like an like a managed fund they're largely treated the same for tax purposes uh, that that's right um, and there's, there's sort of a just a subtle difference um, in form with um, investing in those entities in that what we were talking about before you hold directly mm-hmm. right so in your own name yep. and you get a dividend statement in your own name Whereas holding through these entities, you're, you've got an investment um, usually in a, in a trust for tax purposes. Mm-hmm. So what you'll get at the end of the year is a statement which will show uh, like it'll, it'll sort of tally down at the bottom to whatever cash you received, but it'll have all the tax components. Mm-hmm. And so it'll say, for example, um, it might say sort of non-primary production income, um, $1,000, uh, label T or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Which means and nothing to the average person except put it in the box that's got T next to it. Well, mm. well, again, the tax office helps you out these days because mm. all that information goes to the tax office and mm. they, they data, pre-data fill. And so most people, either through a tax agent or directly through, mm. um, through the ATO's um, uh, you know, pre-filling service, you you go into your, your your return and there it all is and you've just got to essentially check it off against the statement to make sure there's been no errors um, but but that's that's really the only the only difference um, as part of the service you get that you get that sort of tax statement at, at the end of the year so there's people with jobs like yours in other big companies <laughs> sorting uh, all of that out well, for you yeah well yeah. I don't do that myself but, no uh, no no you, your people do that for you yeah um, so that's one really worth being aware of then and the reason that it is uh, vastly more complex than just your standard share statement is you've got 200 shares or whatever it might be if you're holding the ASX 200 uh, via an ETF there are 200 different companies feeding through their dividends their special dividends buybacks whatever else is going on in there um, or if you've got REITs in there or something else you know, so they're, th- they're feeding through all of that stuff it's all getting chopped up and so they'll just tell you what you've got rather than leaving you to work it out for yourself which would be borderline impossible well it'd take you a while <laughs> <laughs> and um, and it would drive you to uh, whatever 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 is your particular uh, thing you shouldn't be doing. Yeah, it'll drive yeah. you to it. <laughs> drive uh, you to drink, and then yeah. make it even harder for you. That's right. <laughs> but but you're essentially getting someone in the middle to summarise all that complexity for you in that sure. statement. 
So the other one that we have been getting queries about, so this is, we get a lot of sort of relatively straightforward questions like the ones I've been asking, but this is where it gets interesting. So Namtrade investors can buy shares directly in the US, the UK, Germany, and Hong Kong. So they can buy uh, Amazon or Google or Facebook or any of the sort of significant international companies or any even the tiny little ones as well if they want to um, on those exchanges and the tax treatment is somewhat different um, and we are getting queries about that like what do I do now I'm really excited to buy the stock I really want to hold it the currency is dealt with to the extent that everything is brought back to Australian dollars via the platform so you will see the Australian dollar denominated uh, value of that asset but can you talk a little bit about how these attacks so people have some some view as to what to expect okay uh, the first thing I would say before I get into the like the, the detail is mm. Whatever records you get, mm. hold on to them because, okay. because it's very it's very sort of um, the offshore or the foreign jurisdictions have generally got different tax rules to us. They're complex, etc. So we so, so anything that um, anything that arrives either electronically into your inbox or by mail, um, retain it. Put that somewhere. Get that, that in your filing cabinet. That, that's right. Um, but in terms of foreign income. Um, it's the the point I made before. So, no franking credits. Mm-hmm. So I'll just re- reiterate that again. Mm-hmm. Um, you'll receive some form of either dividend or or some other distribution, like a capital return or something like that. Um, now that needs to be converted to Australian dollars for tax. And either I'm not I'm not sure whether whether the investor takes the rate of conversion per. Um, for nap trade or yeah, whether, they do. yeah, yeah okay so it's all done by the platform okay. the actual currency component okay so um so that's done mm-hmm. tick which is which is good then there's foreign tax credits yes now this is where it's it probably the prickliest point of uh complexity because um the offshore or foreign jurisdictions they will generally tax investors that that sort of invest into those jurisdictions through a withholding tax now, um, so let's say your gross distribution is $100. They may charge, depending on their rates, $15 of dividend withholding tax. Now, so, so let's say $85 in, a, in that simple example um, sort of comes back to Australia. Then how our Australian tax rules work is that you should get a credit for that $15 um, prima facie. And you'll need to sort of gross up the, the $15 to get back to that $100 pre-tax amount to put in your tax return. Um, so it's very important for that to claim that $15, and in my example, mm. that um, you know, you've, you've got records of, of the tax actually being deducted and paid. And before, I, I guess, you get to that deduction uh, phase or the $15 being remitted, a lot of jurisdictions have um, sort of strict compliance requirements around, um, you know, the accessing a lower rate. So there's sometimes there's a higher rate that applies if you don't fill in the right form, and it might be th- sort of thirty percent or even something higher. So just a, a key thing is making sure that whatever forms have to be filled in to access the lowest withholding tax rate for that particular. Uh, foreign country 
So it's attending to that and asking the right questions. So, um, you know, asking the right questions around that, making sure whatever forms need to be filled are filled in. So on that front, now trade has QI status, and so our investors don't have to complete a W8 Ben form, which is one of the big ones, I believe. Is that about right? That's right, and and that's a significant compliance concession. We're only mm. one, of, one of the only institutions in Australia that the US or the you know the IRS, I should say, the Internal Revenue Service over there has has given that status to. So that's a significant compliance saving measure mm-hmm. for for investors into the US. Um, we, I guess, my my comments were probably more centred towards you know other jurisdictions mm-hmm. like European ju- jurisdictions, etc., where they're not as progressive as the US on that um, on that sort of QI or qualified intermediary. Status. Yeah, right. Okay. So one of the things that um, that, I, that I will note is that uh, something like 90% of our trading is in the US. Okay. Um, so that's where people have been most interested. But it, you're absolutely right that, you know, that you've got to keep an eye on everywhere. And then we do get questions frequently, which is, you know, would you consider adding this market or this market? And some of them are quite obscure. Some of them are quite difficult to access. Um, so India has been one that's been very popular because the Indian show markets had an absolute terror over the last 15 years. Um but a very difficult market to get access to just in general. And then all of those additional components are actually very difficult and expensive to put in place for investors. So yeah. um, generally we sort of suggest people go via a, a product that will allow them access to that market. I was just going to make one final comment with mm-hmm. um, for investing sort of in, in offshore um, is the capital gains tax. Yeah. So um, capital gains tax... Uh, as I mentioned before, you need a, a cost base to compare against your, your sale price uh, once you dispose of the particular investment to work out whether you've made a capital gain or capital loss. Now, first thing is that needs to be converted into Australian dollars for tax. So there's, there's rules around that. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, with especially in the US, they don't have a franking regime. And... Uh, a common way that they, um, uh, I guess, repatriate or, or pay out returns is through capital reductions. And and also, they've got rules over there that allow companies to readily amalgamate and split, etc. And so my, my point is to be very careful for capital gains tax to, to, to if, if, if there's corporate actions like, as I just described, make sure you keep the records mm-hmm. such that uh, either yourself or, or um, you know, the tax advisor can, can very easily work out what's happened because, you know, with that sort of dynamic corporate behaviour, um, when, you, when you try and work it out, let's say five years later, it can be, it can be difficult to track it back. Yeah, to where it came from. You're absolutely right. And I think some of us, not maybe speaking for myself personally, it's easy to become lax when everything's available digitally whenever you want it. It's easy to assume you can always find what you're looking for when you need it. And uh, and if you're not on top of your records, you can get yourself into a little bit of trouble. <laughs> if I don't, I, uh, certainly with our self-managed super funds, my husband was... Uh, invested in something that was just a little bit left field and he had all the login details and all of those things and going back and finding the details for that was just a nightmare and you forget when you get used to being able to just access anything at any time that uh, keeping those records is terribly important so Steve this is always going to be uh, 
a topic of interest for investors. I'm going to guess that your your next piece of advice is that you, if you find yourself in a in a situation that's just sort of far beyond your expertise, go find a professional to talk to. Where would you suggest people go to get more information to understand a little bit better about how some things work and so sort of feel more comfortable with what the tax treatment of their investments is likely to be? Well, as a first step, the ATO website mm. um, these days is very, very, very good. Mm. Um, they've, especially in the last couple of years, they've, they've really looked at each sort of area of taxable activity. So, for example, investing. And they've they've really beefed up their their literature and um, and also their helplines are are, um, are very uh, informative these days. So I, I would actually recommend the ATO mm-hmm. um, those those sources. And then if if it's a particular tricky uh, problem or, or scenario, then professional advice because it's 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 easy it's easy especially with that foreign. Um, investments that we, we talked about it's easy to to fall foul of um, of, of the rules because there's a lot of rules <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and two different sets of rules as well that's just right to make life fun. that's right mm. so that, that would be my guidance suggestion on where yeah. to go steve thank you so much for your time today it's incredibly helpful people to understand some of the fundamentals in this area and also that foreign jurisdiction stuff is is complex we get plenty of questions about it so thank you so much no problems thank you <laughs> thanks for having me Thank you so much for listening also. As always, we hope this episode has been helpful for you on your journey to creating wealth. Uh, If you have any feedback or suggestions, you know we take them really seriously. It took us a little while to pull this one together, but we, um, we really do love to hear from you and we do try our very best to cover the topics that you're most interested in. So please just email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealthatnab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.